Not everything in life is what it seems, because even salt looks like sugar. My name is Kim, and I support Tony Ingram with Justice for Morgan. My name is Shauna, and I support Tony Ingram in getting justice for her daughter, Morgan, who was stalked and murdered. I'm Grace, and I was raped two years ago, and I never got justice, and I support all the other victims, including Morgan Ingram, and justice for her and her family. Hello, my name is Barbara, and I support Tony Ingram in getting justice for her daughter, Morgan. My name is Feroz, and I support Tony. Greetings from the dark side of the pomegranate. I am your host, Billy Hoosh. Welcome to Even Salt Looks Like Sugar, a podcast that explores true crime, paranormal activity, and unsolved mysteries. This series discusses difficult and distressing subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Episode 10. The Death of Morgan Ingram. Imagine waking up to the news that your daughter is dead. Tony Ingram received this news almost a decade ago when her daughter Morgan Ingram was found lifeless on December the 2nd, 2011 in their Carbondale, Colorado home. Even though the case is closed with so many questions left unanswered and a plethora of speculation, what happened to her? Join me today for our first season finale as I speak with Tony Ingram, Morgan's mother, about her daughter and the events that led up to her death and what she believes happened. This is the tragic death of Morgan Ingram. Hello, Tony. Thank you for being on the show. First and foremost, can you tell us about Morgan? What kind of person was she? Oh, thank you for having me on. I greatly appreciate it. Um, Morgan was our youngest daughter. She was 13 years younger than our oldest daughter and 10 years younger than our son. So she was the baby of the family and very, very much loved. Um, She was a beautiful and kind person. She was known for her very caring heart and loving soul. Um, she never let anything come before helping others, and she had many friends. And many times I'd tell her, I thought you were in your room studying for a big test. And she said, well, a friend called and needs me right now, so I'll be back. And she would take off. Um, she enjoyed playing the piano and singing, always finding enjoyment, simple things like baking goodies for her family and friends. She crocheted and knit, knitted um, little homemade presents for everyone, as well as getting up really early in the morning just to see the sunrise because Morgan loved life so much. Um, So this was really, really hard for us to lose her. Morgan surrounded herself with color. She loved philosophy, yoga, and meditation, along with every animal she ever met. 
Morgan actually taught herself how to play the piano, crochet, knit, sew, and she enjoyed horseback riding. She had a horse. She used to love to ride her bicycle back and forth into town instead of driving many times if it was a sunny day. And she was smiling constantly. She liked hiking, reading, and doing hula, which she learned in Hawaii when she went um, that last summer of her life. When she went as a graduation present from her godfather, she went to um, Hawaii and she learned how to hula. So she loved doing that too because she loved dancing. Um, she loved teaching herself new things and making crafts. She taught herself languages, first French and then Lithuanian because her father's uh, family was from Lithuania. She was always finding time to volunteer, do volunteer work um, and work with children. She used to do um, help cancer, uh, cancer survivors and people that were going through cancer treatment. She would go and help uh, take care of their children while they were away um, at the hospital. And she never had time for video games and any teenage drama, so I guess she wasn't like your normal teenager. Um, she preferred, preferred downtime, um, talking, talking with me and hanging out on the couch many times. And she had us buy her the series Gilmore Girls and Buffy the Vampire Killer, and she'd want me to sit on the couch and watch them with her. And she would always tell me, Mom, you're my best friend. And I would, would always say to her, Morgan, don't be silly. I'm your mom. <laughs> so most kids... And most kids think of their moms as taskmasters or something like that. But Morgan would just squeeze my hand like she always did from the day she learned to walk. And she would say, you will always be my best friend because I can tell you anything and you listen to me. And that's emotional to me because now when I think back on it, I want to kick myself for not just saying, I know you're my best friend too. But she was. Wow, that she sounds like an amazing person, and that also sounds like a, a beautiful relationship that you guys had with each other. That's um, um, now I'm going to ask you when did she first uh, tell you about a stalker or that she was being stalked? Could you explain that? Um, yeah, August 2nd, 2011, we had just come back from vacationing with Morgan, um, the night before, and that's when I guess she became aware of the stalker, aware of the stalker. We had no idea. She didn't tell us and she didn't know it was a stalker. Um, she just knew at the time when she came home and turned on her light in her bedroom and started getting undressed and ready for bed with her new puppy. She had just brought a new puppy home from vacation with us. Um, she'd hear tapping on her window and she had no idea what it was. And at first she just kind of thought this was strange because we'd been in that house for years and she had never had that happen. So um, later on, I found this out from her. I, I had no idea. She didn't tell us that night. But this went on for uh, several days, and, um, it, and it bothered her so much. This was, I think the second was on a Tuesday, and I think by Friday night, she finally told us um, something's really wrong, and I'm getting really nervous. And she told us about the tapping on her window because it wasn't just on her bedroom window, but it was also if she went into her bathroom to take a shower now, it was tapping on her bathroom window. And you couldn't see through the windows. But in her bathroom, you know how they have the obscured windows? Mm -hmm. You could see a light come on, maybe shadows, but that's about it. And so she'd be in there, and then there'd be tapping on that window. So she told me that night, Friday night, and I told her father. And we just said, well, it's dark now. We didn't think anything of it. We knew nothing about stalking and what could happen. And so um, we just said in the morning when it's light, we'll go out and see. Maybe there's a bird tapping on your window or a branch hitting the window from the wind or something like that. So we just went to bed that night. Um, 
the next morning we got up when it was light we all walked out there and searched and we looked and there was nothing that could have been hitting her window so then we got nervous mm. okay um now tony this next part is going to be difficult um taking you back to the day you discovered morgan what did you notice and what happened oh um well we went into her room well first of all i guess i should tell you that uh it was like the perfect storm then it was hard because four days before she was murdered um she was scheduled four days before she was scheduled to give her on camera statement was the morning that i found her so but the sh we didn't know at the time but the sheriff um had told the suspect just days before her murder that um she was going to be giving her on-camera statement because they believed that they were going to be making an arrest. Mm -hmm. So I knew there was an impending arrest coming up, but they didn't tell me that they went to the, to the suspects and, and told them or warned them. I don't know what they were thinking. Maybe the detective thought that they were just going to confess or get nervous, but um, it was a good way to get rid of the witness at that point. We had no idea. And then two days before her murder, when the sheriff came to our house to check the camera again, their cameras we had cameras they had cameras um to check their camera again um he's i was still hopeful that it was going away that that it was going to snow any day and the stalker would go away because there would be tracks in the snow and he wouldn't be able to stalk her anymore um i told that to the detective and the detective said no i believe that that stalking is going to escalate that was two nights before the murder hmm. so then the night of the murder we hadn't been sleeping none of us had been sleeping we were totally exhausted and we did everything wrong, possibly wrong. We were so tired. And my husband said, um, our large dog, our, our Newfoundland, who's not really a watchdog, but she's a big dog, we always left her loose in the house to, to guard you know, the house from the stalker. Um, my, the, the sheriff had said they were putting extra additional um, patrols on our house that night mm -hmm. or that week after Tuesday. And Thursday night was the night she was killed. So, um, they were putting additional things. And when they did, our, our larger dog would bark because they would set off the alarm. And my husband was so exhausted. You know, we had the, the motion detector alarm. So every time they'd come by in their large truck, it would set off the alarm. So my husband disconnected that, the alarm and because he wanted to sleep. And he felt like we were safe because they had additional patrols on the house, which was a really bad mistake. And then, um, so that was the first mistake. The second mistake was the dog was acting really strange that night. When Morgan went into her room and closed her door, um, our large dog was lying on the entry floor, just staring at her door, just, you know, and she never did that. And um, so I was gonna leave her loose and my husband said, no, she's gonna bark at the, at the when the alarm goes off, she's gonna bark again, we need to get our sleep. So put her in our room. So he dragged her into our room and closed the door. So she didn't have free run of the house, which was, Another mistake, huge mistake. Um, there were just so many mistakes. It was unbelievable that we made that night. We had our motion detector in the backyard on the deck, you know, so that it was guarding the two big sliding glass doors in the backyard. We had taken that in the house the night before. To, he wanted to paint it a camouflage color because we had to keep moving it around because it kept ending up on the ground upside down where it wouldn't go off. So the person knew where we were putting it and they could put it on the ground when we were at home upside down. So he was going to camouflage it with paint and put it, hide it somewhere. And it hadn't dried yet. And so we hadn't put it back out there. So that alarm wasn't on. There were just so many little things that we did wrong. It was unbelievable. And then 
after the dog was locked up in our room, which was in the back of the house. And Morgan's room was on the very front of the house. So it was a, what, a 3,500-square-foot house. And we were very far apart, and the doors were solid wood doors. Um, the other thing that happened was um, she was in that room, and we had, you know, we didn't hear anything. And I thought everything was fine. And my husband said, let's take sleeping pills because we really need to get some rest. We're not being coherent these days. We're so exhausted. So we both took sleeping pills, and that was a huge mistake to take a sleeping pill. So we fell asleep, and the next morning he woke up, I think it's probably around 5 a.m., not sure, and um, went in, started the coffee, sat at the table, was reading the news. And then I got up um, after that. I'm not sure exactly what time it was, 6 a.m. or something. And I walked in the kitchen, and I said, did, did Morgan get up and take the puppy out to go potty? Because she, after the soccer showed up in the backyard at 5 a.m., when she went to let the puppy go in the pot, go potty out in the backyard and scared the living hell out of her, we told her, don't ever go out in the backyard unless your dad and I are awake. Otherwise, if she has to go potty, wake us up, and we'll just take her out for you. So um, he said, no, I haven't seen her. And I thought that was kind of strange because the puppy would want to go potty by then. So I walked in her room, up to her, her door and knocked on the door, and she didn't answer me. So I opened the door. And the first thing I saw was bizarre. Um, Morgan never left her light on in her bedroom or her bathroom or her closet because every time she turned on the light in the beginning of the stocking, which was four months before that, that's when it started, um, she would get the knocking within minutes on her window or, or something. And she would, it would scare her, so she would just keep the lights off. So I walked in her room, and she looked. from Her room was dark, and it looked like she was sleeping in her bed on the wrong side of the bed where she normally didn't sleep on and facing the wrong direction, but under the cover. So I thought, okay, she's sleeping. And then I looked. Her bathroom light was on, and her puppy and her cat, who never hung out together because they didn't like each other, um, were sitting next to each other with these bewildered looks on their faces. But it still didn't occur to me anything was wrong. I just thought it was strange. So I called the puppy, and she came to me, and I brought her out in the backyard, and she went potty, and I brought her back in. And when I brought her back in Morgan's room, I looked, and I saw that she had had a little accident. She pooped on the floor by the door, and it was all dry. It was, like, old, and it wasn't there the night before. So I said to Morgan, I said, Morgan, are you going to say thank you? I'm cleaning up your dog's poopy. And she didn't answer me. And I picked up the poop, and I got rid of it, and I came back in. I said, Morgan, and then, now I was getting scared. And I walked up to her bed, and I shook her shoulder because her blank was pulled all the way up to her shoulder. And um, I shook on her shoulder, and she felt warm, but she didn't react. And then all of a sudden, it just, this energy just rushed through me. I said, something is really, really wrong. So I just started screaming, and I ran out of her room, and I was screaming for Steve and her father. And he came running down the hall, and we both came running back into her room. And he was screaming, Morgan, what's wrong? What's wrong? And he, um, so she was on the left side of her bed. She had a queen-sized bed. So he, like, kneeled on the right side of her bed and threw the comforter off of her. And that was the first time, Billy, that we saw something was really weird because she was laying on her right side. Her head was on the pillow, but her arms were bent at a 90-degree angle, and her left arm was rose above her body. So it was above her body, like it had been holding the blanket up, and her knees were at a 90-degree angle. So, But they were apart. They weren't together. Um, you know, when you lay on your side, it's very easy for somebody to understand. If they lay on, lay on your right side and pretend you're going to sleep, mm -hmm. your arm does not stay at a 90-degree angle up in the air like that, neither does your knee. Mm -hmm. 
you know, it's impossible because it lays down, you know, it's the, the bed. And so her body didn't look normal at all. And he just rolled her onto her back right away. And her knees were bent. Her legs were up in the air and her knees were bent. And her arms were up in the air, like facing her fists were facing the ceiling. The second thing I noticed about her was her hands were like in fists. And so that's what I thought. I said, oh, my gosh, her hands are in fists. Is she clenching something? But they were tight, like in fists. And that's the only thing I thought. And then I looked at her, and Steve started um, CPR on her right away. It screamed at me to go call um, 911. So I ran into across the hallway into my office, because that was my office area. And I grabbed the phone, and I called 911. And I told them what was happening. And the woman said, um, uh, is her, is, is, when he pushes on her chest, is, it, is there movement or is it hard? And so I said, let me find out. So I put the phone down, ran in the room. I said, are you getting movement in her chest? And he said, yes, it's moving. And I said, okay, great. So I ran back in the room again, and I said, it's moving. She said, great, get her on a hard surface. Don't leave her on the bed on her back. Put her on a hard surface. So I put the phone down again. I ran into the room, and, you know, you're just, you're just reacting to whatever they're telling you at that point. So I run in the room. I said, they said to put her on the, the floor. So he is on the bed now on his knees trying to give her CPR, and he grabs her shoulders, and I grabbed her ankles. And we swung her onto the floor of the bedroom, onto the carpet. And right when we swung her onto the car carpet, we were, I was holding her ankles and Steve was holding her shoulders. It was the strangest thing. We didn't know it at the time. Later on, we talked and we both knew that we saw the same thing. But right when we touched her to swing her onto the floor, and I was looking at her face the whole time, and he was looking at her face, it's like she turned like Smurf blue, you know, like with the, Smurf, the blue that the Smurfs are on television. Hmm. She looked like she turned Smurf blue, but she wasn't Smurf blue before that. She wasn't blue when we got her on the floor. It's just in between, she looked blue. And it was shocking to me. And I let go of her ankles when she hit the ground. And I ran back on, back in to talk on the phone to 911 again. And Steve continued CPR at that point. And then she was reassuring me that the ambulance was on the way, the first responders. And that thing would be there any time. So then I said, okay. And she, I stayed on the phone with her for a little bit. And then she said, okay, they should, they're coming around the corner. So I ran in the room and told Steve, they're coming around the corner. He goes, okay, go outside and move the car out of the driveway so they could pull up right away. So I ran out to the driveway to get into the car that Morgan, you know, she her, she was sharing my car at the time because her car had 300,000 miles on it and it was breaking down. And I was too scared for her to drive that car anymore. So she was driving my car, so she had pulled it up into the driveway that night. So I ran out there with my keys, and it was almost like I went into a, an altered state because I went in, I just didn't want to believe what was happening. I think it was going on. So I walked out to the car, and I didn't know this until later when I reviewed the camera. I could see what I was doing. I ran out to the car. I opened the door. I could see her acceptance letter to the college on the um, on the dashboard that was accepting all her credits. She knew she was accepted, but she they she wanted to make sure all her credits were accepted. So they, it was the acceptance letter for her credits. On the, she had just gone to the post office that day, was on the thing. And then I saw her bag with her ballet stuff in it. And I was always telling her, don't leave your ballet shoes in the car overnight because it's freezing and, you know, it could damage the shoes. And I saw she had her, her, her um, ballet shoes in there and, her, and a bag of stuff and some things. And so I just grabbed it and her sweater. She had a sweater. And so an old sweater that she had left in the car. So it's like I was cleaning out the car. I forgot what I was doing. So I picked up the stuff. I was walking through the front door. As soon as I walked in the front door, Steve screamed at me, did you move the car? I said, oh, my God, I just dropped everything. I go, run back out the front door again, jumped in the car, and I drove out the driveway, and I drove, parked it in front of the um, house. And I realized 
that I could see the first responders, they were down the street at the wrong house. So um, I started screaming and yelling and waving my arms. And so then they jumped in their truck and they came rolling up and they came up the driveway and I ran through the front door back into the house again. They came in and they said, um, okay, um, you know, we need you to leave the room. Can you go in the other room? We can't have you in here right now. And they unpacked all their stuff and they, you know, they opened her shirt up and they tried to, um, you know, zap her and stuff. And, and so then they, Steve and I went to the living room and they came in and they were asking us questions about how, what position we found her in, what happened, blah, 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 blah. And we were talking to them for a little bit. And then, um, then the sheriff came and said that we were going to, we were going to close it off as a crime scene and that we had to get dressed and, and leave the house. So I went in the room to get dressed and still in shock. And then Steve laid down on the couch to show the sheriff now the position that we found her body in. He laid on the couch on his right side, showing him exactly how she died. Later on, two years later, when we get the sheriff's report, finally, um, he writes down that when he got there, her father was laying on the couch um, upset and didn't even explain that he was sitting on the couch until he asked what position she was in, and then he laid on the couch to show him, and he made it sound like he was just laying on the couch in the living room. So it was just, that was the beginning of all these crazy things that happened. Um, and then we went next door, and then they proceeded from there. Yeah, I, I can't even imagine what would go through your mind and how you would feel during that time. I'm sure everything would be a complete haze during that. Um, and you were mentioning, and, go ahead. You, yes. Oh, I was going to say, and you don't want to believe what you're seeing, too. Another mm. thing that we saw, we were looking at her face, right, that her nose was flattened and her lips were swollen. There, were blood, there was blood on her teeth. There was blood on her forehead, like a wound, like a little round circle mm. um, just below her hairline on her, on her temple. Um, her hair was a big mess. And the, the, night, the day before, she had just showered. Um, was blow drying her hair and she had the curling iron. She was curling her hair and she was putting on makeup because she was going into town to help her friend find a job. Um, so her hair, and when she came home that night, her hair was gorgeous. It was still down. It was, you know, wavy and beautiful. And when we saw her, her hair was like all matted, like there was a struggle. And the night before also, when I went in the room at eight o'clock before she came home, she came home at five minutes after nine. But at eight o'clock when I went in her, in her room, because Steve and I had been gone for about two hours. We went to the grocery store and out to dinner and stuff. Um, and that was the other mistake we met to, made, too. We usually left the puppy and our dog loose in the house whenever we were gone to guard the house. But that night, the puppy had, Morgan had left the puppy at home that afternoon when she went into town to help a friend find a job. And um, the puppy had ripped up one of our larger dog stuffed animals, and it was all over the living room. So after I cleaned it all up, when we went out, I put them in the laundry room and locked them up. So the house was not guarded when we were gone for those two hours. Mm. And um, so that was another thing we did wrong. Well, so that, so we, her hair was all matted. It was all a big mess, and that wasn't normal as well. And her also her pants were unbuttoned and unzipped, which was why. What was that all about? And just everything looked weird on her. And we were in a shock, and we were in, in I guess, a haze. So we didn't notice all the other things that were wrong with that crime scene at the moment. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned the authorities were questioning um, a suspect for the stalking uh, prior. What did they tell you about that? Um, 
they were the first ones that came up with what they believed was the main suspect. There were there was more than one suspect. This hmm. wasn't just one person stalking Morgan. This was actually him and his at the time girlfriend that were stalking Morgan. I don't know whether it started out as a joke and he became obsessed or what ended up happening, but hmm. they interviewed both of them. And they had both of them in the police reports, but the girl was under just under 18, mm -hmm. so they had to redact her name. He was the main suspect, and they believed it was all him, mm -hmm. mostly. Um, and even five months after her murder, they interviewed him. And I think on one of the um, shows that they did on Morgan, they actually had parts of that interview. And, I mean, basically the detective was telling him, you know, this doesn't pass a smell test. You're lying to us. We can see you in the video coming up the driveway. And he just said, it wasn't me. But, I mean, they knew it was him. And we, we knew it was his car um, because of the, the girl on the car and, you know, everything. It didn't have a license on it at the time. But it fit the description of his car exactly. Um, they knew it was him. I mean, they did know it was him. Morgan knew it was him. They talked about what they were going to do. They asked her not to get um, an order of protection. Mm -hmm. Uh, because they they believed that they could catch him in the act, um, you know, and that might scare him off, which would have been a nice thing, although I don't think it would have scared him off, but it would have given us a lot more leverage if she had gotten an order of protection. It was horrible. It was just horrible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, now, you were talking about a show, and uh, you appeared on the show accident suicide and murder the show made you take a polygraph test and i know how polygraph tests don't exactly they're not um they don't work in court exactly um mm -hmm. and it, it on the show you failed some of the questions i'd like to give you um a chance to explain what do you think what, what happened in that situation oh i know exactly what happened in fact the one of the stars of the show, Kelly, came on and, and told me before the show came out, so I knew what was going on. That, I mean, they, they rewrote the show in exactly what they wanted. The person that was running the show wanted it to look like nothing really happened, which wasn't true. Both people, Kelly as well as Paul Holes, all the way through said they knew she was murdered. They believed who the murderer was. They thought they were going to be able to catch him. They even did a DNA thing, but they didn't match it up. They didn't try to match it to anybody, but they did have the DNA um, on something that was left in her room that night. Um, she, Kelly was beside herself. She was very upset over the whole thing. And I told her, well, you know, there's not a lot you can do. When you go out there and you decide to do something on television, um, you're kind of at the whim of what they end up doing, mm -hmm. you know. If they've been threatened or anything happens, um, they, they can change it in a, in a heartbeat. I mean, it's ridiculous. And so um, they didn't show everything complete. As far as the polygraph test went, I was there for eight hours. The person that was running the polygraph, uh, polygraph test, I believe, was really good. I thought he was good. Um, he had good credentials. And he ran into major problems with both Steve and I. First, before we took the test, I... I explained to them um, I needed them to find out if there would be a problem with Steve taking it because he had a traumatic brain injury when he was uh, years ago, and um, we were told by another expert that he can't do a polygraph test because it could be flawed because of 
um, you know, the traumatic head injury he went through. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't always get dates right. He doesn't always get, he gets a lot of things confused off and on. So um, I told them that up front, and I said, could you check with the polygraph person and see if that's going to be okay? They told me they did, and he said it was fine. Later on, I find out that's not true, but that's what they said at the time. So I thought, okay, no problem, because he wanted to do it, and I wanted to do it. I thought it would be a good thing. Mm -hmm. And then, so that was one thing that happened. Another thing that happened is I'm only five foot two, so I guess I'm kind of short. Um, I didn't understand at the time that he told me, okay, you have to sit very still, and you have to keep your feet on the ground, right, at all times. Mm-hmm. My feet couldn't be on the ground at all times because the chair was too high. So I kept saying, he, he'd ask me, are your feet on the ground? And I'd say, yes, and I'd put them on the ground. But then I'd move them up because I couldn't sit like that for that long, and I was there for eight hours. And we did have breaks in between, but it was hard. And so I kept moving my feet. Later on, I, I found a person that I became friends with who's a, a current, an active FBI agent that did this. She did polygraphs. Mm-hmm. And I was explaining to her all the things that happened. She couldn't believe it. She goes, I can't believe they even did that polygraph. He kept stopping throughout the eight hours to call up. He said he was calling Paul Holes. I don't know whether it was Paul Holes or it was the other woman I'm talking about, but saying he was having all kinds of problems. And they kept telling him to continue. So he'd go back in and say, okay, let's do this again. Let's do this again. And then he would stop it with me anyway. I could just tell you me because I was separated from Steve at the time. With me, he'd stop it and he'd go, okay. Um, you need to say, when I ask you the question, um, let's see, uh, do you feel guilty about Morgan's death? And I would say, yes. He'd say, he'd stop the test and he'd say, why do you feel guilty? And I tell him I feel guilty because I did everything wrong. I thought I was doing everything right. I did everything wrong. I have to feel guilty because my daughter's dead. If I had done everything right, my daughter would be alive. And he'd tell me, I have a son too. And that's not true. You can't blame yourself for her death and I said for her murder and I said you know what I can and there's nothing you can say that's going to change that and he'd go okay let's look look at it this way and he kept telling me different things and he'd say okay you have to answer the question no and so he'd ask me a question and I'd say no but it wasn't true I did believe that I was guilty you know of of her her murder because I didn't stop it I'm a mom. I told it to him. I started crying. He started crying. I said, look, you have to understand. We were trying everything. If I had gotten her out of there, like her sister called every night for five nights before her murder, begging me to send her to California to get her out of there because she had a bad feeling. Her godfather from Hawaii called up for weeks asking me to get her out of there and to send her to his place in, in Hawaii. And same with her soulmate who was in Savannah at the time. He was asking her Every time I'd say, please, Morgan, I think you got to get out of here, she'd say, I have two more weeks of school, I have a puppy I don't want to leave behind, and I have babysitting things I'm supposed to be doing, you know, for over Christmas because the tourists are coming in. So she had babysitting things that she had committed to. And I said, it doesn't matter. This is dangerous. you got to get out of here. She said, no. She was 20 years old, and there was no way I could make her. Now, in retrospect, like I told the polygraph person, I would have tied her up and threw her in the back of the car and dragged her out of there if I thought that there was a possibility of her being murdered. And I didn't. So no matter what anybody says, I'm going to believe that, that I'm guilty. And then the other thing that he said that I failed on, or they said I failed on, he didn't say that to me, was um, he asked me if I had moved anything in her room. I said, yes, we moved her body 
from, from the bed onto the floor. We completely changed. And when I did that, when I pulled down her legs, I forgot to tell you this, her legs went straight. So they were no longer bent. Her arms were still facing the ceiling, but her legs went straight. So I explained all this to him. And he said, that's not what, we're, what I'm asking you. I'm asking you if you changed anything in the room that would have a whatever. I don't know what it, what, how exactly he said it. But he basically wanted to know if I made it look like something it wasn't. And I kept telling him, yes, I moved your body. And he kept saying, that's not what I'm asking you. So we went through the, that's why it took eight hours. And we went through it so many times. So then I finally just say what he wanted me to say. I say, no, I did not move anything. But I'm sure my body was telling me, yes, you did. You moved your body. So he wouldn't accept my answer when I explained to him why I was answering a certain way because he wanted it to sound a certain way. And so I disregarded it when Kelly called me and told me what happened. I said, well, Kelly, this is why, and I know why. And he, she didn't even know that the polygraph test, uh, testing guy had told, called supposedly while we were there Paul Holes like at least six times to tell him it wasn't working. Hmm. She didn't even know about it. They weren't even communicating. Mm -hmm. That um, Your explanation makes perfect sense, especially with um, how you described earlier what had happened. And... Throughout the description, it felt like you were internalizing it. You were blaming yourself and saying that these were different mistakes you guys did. I think the polygraph test, the person testing you, didn't understand in the context of how, why you were saying these things. And usually, from what I understand, polygraph tests only look at the transcript, and that's what they use um, in court. It's so maybe that's why he was so stuck on the wording of what you were saying, but not taking into account the context of why you were saying these things. So it, it does, that that is very, very strange. Was there a reason why, why didn't they um, do a polygraph test on the suspect, the person that was stalking your daughter? They never did. They didn't do anything. Uh, his father was threatening to sue. Um, they just didn't. They didn't. They did nothing. Um, basically, let's see, uh, she was murdered on December 2nd. I believe May, I can't remember the exact date in May, but May, in May, afterwards, months later, after they had, he had already um, interviewed, brought the suspect in to the sheriff station, substation, and mm -hmm. interviewed him on camera. And he didn't admit to doing it, to stalking Morgan or murdering her. Um, they decided there was nothing they could do because he didn't admit it. They never do anything unless somebody admits it, I guess. Mm -hmm. And um, we went in to meet with him to give him even more evidence that we found at that point in time. And he looked at us on camera, because we were on camera at the time, and he said, um, we have no evidence of a stalker. We don't even know who the stalker was. I could have been the stalker for all that matters, pointing to himself. Mm -hmm. He said, this chair could, be a, could have been the stalker. And he lifted up a chair. And held it out to me and my husband looked at him and just said and then looked at me and said tony we're gone there's no i mean now they're trying to say there's no stalker when the guy when the sheriff knew i mean the detective knew all along he was the one telling us he did a poster with the guy's picture the car um our house um everything on the poster and he passed it out not only to the sheriff's department but to also to the carbondale police department everyone else that could possibly be around our area to look out for this guy. I mean, he knew it was the guy, and he so he was told by somebody. And so then my husband 
grabbed my shoulder and said, we're out of here. So I said, okay, fine. So I turned around. We walked out of the room that they were recording us in. And as soon as we, we were trying to leave, the sheriff's deputy, since he was off camera, leaned out of the door to where we were. And he looked at us and he said, it doesn't matter what Megan, that was the other detective on the case, Mm-hmm. And I believe in here. And he pounded on his heart. He said, we have to do what we're told. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. Now, you did mention... At that point, we knew what we were up against. Yeah. You, you did mention about DNA. Was it ever proven the DNA on those items found were of the suspect? And did he ever give they up did, his they, DNA? They told me when they, did the, when they did the DNA, when they had the DNA done, they told me exactly what DNA was on there mm-hmm. and that they had it. It was a male DNA. Mm-hmm. I also told them, well, there's a lot to, more to it, too, about the kind of uh, the hat that it was on and what kind of hat it was and where it had come from. But um, I won't get into that right now. But they said that they were going to try to get the DNA from the person mm-hmm. to see if it matched. But then they were told not to. They were told to stand down and if they couldn't do it. So they never got the DNA from the person that they believe, that Paul Holt believes it belonged to. Mm. Um, I mean, he told us this. Mm-hmm. He told my son this. And he told Kelly this. I mean, they knew. They did know. So we still have the DNA. But we, have, we don't have the stalker's DNA yet. Now, um, there's a lot of speculation about this um, amitriptyline. I hope I'm saying it right. Amitriptyline. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, right. Did, did Morgan take amitriptyline, or can you tell me more about this? Um, she was exposed to carbon monoxide when she was younger, mm-hmm. and we didn't. But it was low levels. We had no idea, and she got really sick over a period of a year, to the point where her hair started falling out. She was two weeks to go to school. We didn't know what it was, and the doctors in the area we were bringing her to doctors they had no clue either Mm -hmm. um so we brought her to children's hospital in denver Mm -hmm. they didn't know what it was they tested her her for everything um but not for carbon monoxide unfortunately and they said she had chronic pain and they want they gave they those are the first ones that gave her amitriptyline they prescribed it and she was young Mm -hmm. so she was taking it for a while um and then we found out that um, that it was because we had a carbon monoxide leak in the in the place that we were living, and so we immediately moved her out, and immediate and we brought her to the hospital, had her tested, and she was it was off the charts on how much how much carbon monoxide she had in her body it was so bad it was unbelievable they had never seen anything like it, and so but but luckily carbon monoxide starts coming out of your body right away, so she started feeling better not being in the house, and she started feeling better better all the time, better and better. And she started going to school again, and she was so happy. She had her life back, and she knew what caused it. But then we didn't realize that there were going to be long-term effects from that, and what it was was she continued to have chronic pain because her uh, parasympathetic and her sympathetic nervous systems had flip-flops, which happens after a trauma or it happens after carbon monoxide or whatever, Mm -hmm. or after an operation sometimes even in some people. And we didn't know this until we brought her to UCLA to see why she was having pain still. And Dr. Zelcher was the one that, um, you know, figured it out. And then she was having IBS because of it, too. So she kept her on amitriptyline for a little while. And then finally, when Morgan was older, she turned 18, she decided, I'm not taking pills anymore. I'm going all natural. So she started doing yoga. She started um, 
doing all kinds of stuff, and she went off medication completely, and she felt great, and she started getting stronger and stronger, and she was able to travel again and do things with her friends, and she just was such a happy girl at that point. So she didn't have any amitriptyline anymore. She wasn't taking it. The only thing she did take is every once in a while, if for some reason she um, she had something that upset her a lot, like something scary or something happened, like she um, she would have a pain attack, and so we'd bring her to the ER, and they would um, give her some you know some medication and put a drip into her, and then she'd sleep it off for 24 hours, and then she'd be fine again, but she didn't want to go to ER. So we talked to Dr. Zelster again. She said, you know what, I'm going to give her, I'm going to give her gabapentin, and if she starts feeling an attack come on, take one. It's an off-record use for the gabapentin. Take one gabapentin. If that doesn't work, take two, and if, if it's really bad, take three, and she might not have to go to ER, and she only had one attack after that was prescribed to her, and she took it, and it worked, and we didn't have to go to ER, thank God. So she was happy, so we always put three of them in a little um, stainless steel little carrier thing for pills, and she kept it in the car, so she kept it with her all the time, and she had, and she still had the three in there when she died. And uh, we had a big, huge bottle of gabapentin. So, I mean, that would have worked a lot better than amitriptyline to kill her, but she didn't have that in her bedroom. So the person that killed her did not know that she did that she had gabapentin. She only had an old, expired, year and a half expired prescription for amitriptyline that had almost all the pills in it when she died. So they took that into custody, and when they found out she had amitriptyline in her body, they said, "Oh, she's just taking it. This is her medication." And I told the pathologist, "No, she hasn't taken it in over a year and a half, and she mm -hmm. hates it. Mm -hmm. She would never take it." And he said, "Well, parents are the last to know." But mm -hmm. when we had her, her, we had the second opinion done by a very esteemed medical um, examiner out of Colorado, too. Yes. And he looked at her levels, and he, he looked at her toxicology results, and he actually called the head of the lab that did the toxicology results um, in Maryland and talked to him. And he called us up, and he said, you know what? All you need is this toxicology results to know that she, number one, did not die from natural causes. She died from a massive dose of amitriptyline. Number two, it's a sexual assault drug. Number three, you could tell by the amount that was in her blood, which you have to take the, it's kind of hard to understand, and I didn't understand it at the time until I was told by, by a doctor and by scientists, that you have to take the amount, which was 7,900, I believe, um, in her bloodstream of the amitriptyline, and, take, and also add in the nortriptyline, which is the metabolite. So as for the length of the time that the amitriptyline is in your body, it starts turn, spilling over into nortriptyline. So it turns into nortriptyline. So if you add those two together, it's basically 10,000 uh, grams of amitriptyline that was put into her body. And then when we talked to a, an amazing toxicologist from back east that's on all the major, um, you know, high-profile cases, and he looked it over. He said she would have died anywhere between 500 and 1,000 milligrams in her stomach, spilling into her blood. She would have died. Hmm. But she didn't. She had almost 10,000 milligrams in, or nanograms in her bloodstream. And the amount, if you take the, the uh, amitriptyline versus the nortriptyline and you see the percentage difference, it will tell you whether or not she was taking it, and because it was so low on the nortriptyline compared to the amitriptyline, it was only in her body for a short amount of time, the massive level, and then she died. 
said she said she died from it. So you can tell by the so that's why the second opinion that we got mm. and the toxicologist that ran the, the numbers explained why right away they would have known that the that the pathologist was wrong that she wasn't taking the amitriptyline. It was a one-time massive dose that she could not have ingested because by the time it went into her blood, she would have been dead um, by 500 to 1,000 nanograms. Hmm. Tony, why do you believe there's so much resistance of of your family seeking justice for, for Morgan? Um, hearing about the police kind of flipping their story, and I heard stories about just people coming after you about seeking the truth. What, why, why do you think that's, that's the case? Why do I think that's the case? It's kind of not just us. Um, I mean, I've been told by federal agents, I've been told by lots of people before I started working with other families of victims Mm -hmm. that are in the same situation we're in. And there's a lot of them out there. Um, this is what happened. Uh, sometimes I guess, um, there's many different reasons for it. There's many, many different reasons why they come after you, the trolls. But Equitus is a nonprofit organization focused on developing, evaluating, and refining prosecution practices mm-hmm. related to all kinds of gender-based violence, human trafficking, all different things. And they, they state typically the perpetrator harasses and attacks the victims and the victim's family. In, in, in the, often the offender's families and friends attack. They, don't, they say, don't snitch to others. That happens. Or they'll they'll try to get rid of the or discredit the the victim or the victim's family or the mm-hmm. co-victims. Um, and pro- the problem is when members of the criminal justice system do not respond appropriately to that intimidation and fail to correct the system deficiencies that enables opportunities to intimidate, they become inadvertent accomplices to the intimidators. So unfortunately, the the justice department as well as the law enforcement become their accomplices. They they allow this this kind of uh, I, you know thing to happen to people. So um, you know the victim and the victims or victims or witnesses, immediate family, including spouses, children, and pets, become targets. And that's what happened to us. And I mean I know that mm-hmm. even people from different countries that don't even know us or don't even know what really happened at all, um, they'll come on and the federal what did the federal agents told me that. The reason this happens, like there was that big, um, what do you call it, the, um, the shooting that happened in Denver just before Morgan was killed, or j- actually it was right mm-hmm. after Morgan was killed, um, and they were shot in the theater, all these innocent people. The guy came in and shot all these, these people and children in the, in the theater at night when the movie came out, and then he sat on the curb and waited for the police to arrest him, so they arrested him because he had mental problems, obviously. But they actually had the victim's families had their phone numbers in the the trial transcript right Mm -hmm. these victims were getting phone calls from people from out of the country telling them that it was their fault that their child was killed by that person it's all their fault the person wasn't guilty so i mean it happens to everybody it's not just us it's not you know i'd love to say it's just us that's getting that are getting attacked but it's not it's just something that does happen and it's sad that it happens Mm -hmm. but it happens over and over again. So these people sit behind their computer screens mm-hmm. and they're trolls and they just want to attack and they want to lie. And a lot of the people in the beginning of this whole thing that got it all revved up, I believe I've traced them back to friends of the family. So that's kind of like how it starts. And then other people join on the bandwagon. I just don't let them distract me. 
I see that that does that that actually is eye opening too. Um, so people can learn more about this from the Equitus. Um, I believe that's the name of the organization. Right. If they go on that web, if they go on Equitus's um, website, and let me see how do you spell it. Let me look it real quick and see in my notes. It's A E Q U I T A S, and they're they're good to you know to to read about. And also, I don't know whether Sarah told you this or not, but um, I actually wrote something in a book that just came out too called mm -hmm. um survivor i don't know whether you, you heard about that book no pl please but, tell um, us about it okay let me let me just i'm going to try dennis griffith is the one that wrote the book and um it just it meant a lot to me to kind of contribute a chapter in the book with morgan's story so there was 23 people who had the opportunity to share their story in the book survivors and Dennis N. Griffith, Griffin, sorry, G-R-I-F-F-I-N, is a retired investigator. Um, Survivors combines investigative journalism and real cases to highlight the growing number of unsolved cases and issues with police transparency and cases where corruption interrupts, um, where corruption interrupts due diligence. And that's what we've been working on, our due diligence all these years. Mm -hmm. According to, NP, to NPR.org, the national clearance rate for homicide today is 64.1%. 50 years ago, this is an eye-opener, it was more than 90%. Survivors bring systematic issues to the forefront um, along with strategies of how law enforcement and the judicial system can work together to reduce this, this statistic and give families hope for resolution. So even as shocking as those clearance rates are for homicides, Morgan's death, like so many other victims that I work with now, because I'm also the West Coast director for FOVAMP, which is Families of Homicide Victims and Missing Persons, um, but Morgan's death, like so many other victims, is not even figured into that calculation that I'm, we're talking about. There's so many more deaths that are actually murders that are wrongly called natural, accidental, or suicide, depending on what they decide to, to say. Mm -hmm. um, the person, the pathologist that did Morgan's murder, I've had so many families now contact me over the last few years, actually, telling me that he was their pathologist, too. And like one of the most recent ones, the father said that his son went missing. They found him. They pulled him out of um, a lake, I believe, um, far away from where he was last seen. And the same pathologist said he died of accidental drowning. Well, the guy's body was beaten to a pulp. So how do you get beaten up and fall in a, a, a lake that's far, far away from where you were last seen? I don't know. But, I mean, it's just it's horrible. So there's a lot of wrongful manner of deaths, let's say, that are called. And it's not just this pathologist. It's happens many times all over the United States and probably the world. Um, so anyway, it's been said that most, that it's been said that awareness is most certainly the greatest agent for change, and that's exactly what I'm trying to accomplish is change. We need to even the playing field for victims as well as co-victims for all those families and friends that are left behind after a horrific murder. Right now, that field favors the perpetrator, not the victim, as sad and unbelievable as that sounds. It's a great thing that these organizations do exist, and I, I believe that there needs to be more awareness to this issue. Um, well, thank you very much, Tony. I believe that you have every right to question what happened to your daughter, because based on what you have shared today, it's, it's definitely she was a victim of foul play. 
Now, are there any websites or a social media presence or anything that you can share that people want to follow up and learn more? Yeah. Can, uh, yeah, check actually, out? I only have a few. Um, there's a lot out there that act like they're me, but they're not me. And there's nothing I can do about them, really. So I just don't put the effort into trying to get rid of them, I guess. But um, the, the original, uh, six months after Morgan's murder, I started a website and blog. It has over 7 million readers in 115 countries around the world. Because stalking is not just a horrific crime in America. It happens everywhere. As mm -hmm. I now know, so many people have written into me. Um, so many have written into me over the years to tell the story and ask for advice. And um, so I've become a stalking victim advocate. Mm -hmm. And I, so we put together this, this website, and it's um, morganingram.com. And on that, that website, you can also get to the blog that I started. My husband helped me put together the website six months after her murder. And that's basically when all the trolls started attacking. First, it was his family and friends. I've saved everything that they've written into me, and it's just they contradict themselves over and over again. It's, it's like a joke almost. You know, it's ridiculous. He wasn't even in the, the state when, when Morgan was stalked or murdered, and he was five minutes away working at the store. Um, so he was right there. And um, then also the blog is morganstalking.com, so you can get to that. And then also I have a public um, Facebook and Twitter page, and both of them are called Morgan's, with an S, Stalking. Okay. So those are the official things that, that people should go just to those. Um, right. Those are the only two so far that I've ever had up. I mean, I might do more in the future, but those are it right now. Okay. Once again, thank you so much, Tony. Thank you for your time. Oh, I greatly appreciate it you having me on. I really appreciate it. I'm Tony Ingram. Oh, it's not again. I'm Tony Ingram. Alright, come on. <laughs> you bring I Tony no. Joining me today is our writer and co-producer, Sarah Afshar. Hello, Billy. How are you? As you are already aware, I've had the opportunity to speak with Mrs. Ingram in the past about Morgan, her beautiful daughter who tragically lost her life in early December of 2011. Originally, I had the preconceived notion that Morgan Ingram was stalked for months by the man she personally identified. It wasn't until I started diving deep into this case, Billy, before I realized she was a stalking victim because she personally identified the stalker herself. Despite the propaganda being spread by third parties about this case and their sad attempts at pushing confounding theories and narratives, the more I started to believe Tony Ingram was actually, she was actually telling the truth, simply because they attempted to perpetuate a stalking never happened when Morgan personally identified the man stalking her. And theoretically speaking, overlooking such facts to push a false narrative isn't very wise. For instance, Morgan Ingram had an obscene level of amitriptyline in her blood. She had 7,909 nanograms in her bloodstream alone. 
anywhere from 500 nanograms to 1,000 is considered lethal. So how can a 20-year-old who weighs 115 pounds have over 6,000 nanograms, the lethal dose, in her blood? And keep in mind, there were no syringes found in her bedroom. In addition to this, Morgan had 2,833 nanograms of noradriptyline in her blood. The numbers are relatively close and are both way over the lethal limit. Now, if you examine the amount in her stomach, Morgan had 2,287,440 nanograms of amitriptyline with a noradriptyline level of only 9,431 nanograms. Now, do you notice the ratio, Billy, in the blood and in the gastric fluids? I would like to know why the ratio is so close in the blood versus the stomach or gastric fluids. It just doesn't make sense. Furthermore, Billy, if you look at the actual decorum of Morgan Ingram, I just do not believe it was in her character to be so overly distraught to run into her bathroom and hunt for an old prescription from like 2008 or 2009 of amitriptyline as only a few pills were missing from the expired prescription, I just do not think these missing pills are what took her life. If she were suicidal or even entertained the idea of committing suicide, not only would she have attempted to consume more pills from the expired prescription, but it is evidently clear there are stronger pills she could have consumed. Billy, the Ingrams didn't have cyclobenzaprine in their house or any of the additional drugs found in Morgan's bloodstream and system in their house. Nothing. And to those of you, and you know who you are, who attempted to devalue this woman and depict her as a mentally ill, suicidal junkie, you clearly have no idea what you are talking about. And to continue to spread your banal propaganda to fit your inaccurate narratives. You also attack people and spread lies about people, including myself, just because you disagree with them or me. Currently, there are no laws protecting anyone who is deceased. And people can pretty much say whatever they want. There's so much speculation. The day before Morgan Ingram was found, she wrote on Facebook, Billy, and I quote, I love life. She was clearly excited about her new puppy, Wyla, and the holidays approaching. She had so much to look forward to. A suicidal person doesn't say those things. One can also raise concerns when looking at her autopsy photos as they prove a picture can speak many things, words simply cannot. In some of the photos, Billy, it looks like her face was smashed, as if she were assaulted. You also notice marks on her neck, as if she were strangled. The blood on her lip, as well as the way she positioned her hands, just doesn't look right. Billy, I believe this is a case where a young woman was stalked, her stalking wasn't taken seriously, and now she is dead. 
Although it is never good to ever accuse someone with little to no proof, I believe Tony Ingram is onto something, especially here. After all, she is the force, the face, and the voice for her daughter. With that said, yes, I believe Morgan Ingram was a victim of foul play, and I believe her case deserves to be reopened and re-examined. I'm Sarah Afshar, and I support Tony Ingram. Although there is speculation that Morgan Ingram intentionally took her own life with an evidently bogus narrative that she was escaping her mother, I just don't believe this is true and simply a theory created by someone close to the suspect or a rabid true crime fan obsessed with the case. There is also another theory being pushed of a possible overdose. However, the amount of drug in Morgan Ingram's blood alone proves this shouldn't be entertained as factual or even a remote possibility. Considering it was the amount in her blood that killed her and not her stomach. Based on what has been shared with me today, I believe it's safe to say that her case deserves a second look. If you are enjoying tonight's episode of Even Salt Looks Like Sugar, please subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find fine podcasts. Also visit our official website, evensaltlookslikesugar.com. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Billy Hoosh, signing off. Thank you for listening. We will be back next season with more episodes. Remember, not everything in life is what it seems, because even salt looks like sugar. Listen if you do.